For those of you who are new here at the Vineyard uh, and have maybe never experienced what these guys were doing, that's just prophetic ministry. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, that the one who prophesies speaks to men for their edification, exhortation, and comfort. Um, it's not about embarrassing anyone. It's just about uh, releasing the Father's opinion on you, if that makes sense. So we always want to give time for that at the Vineyard because most of us who have been around here for a while have come to realize that one of the most powerful and formational things in the spirit is to receive the Father's opinion. Um, so we always want to do that. Hey, um, for this morning's message, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to continue on in our second sermon of the series here. You can open up your Bible there. We're going to look at 25 verses this morning. We're going to read a bunch of scripture and um, pick up a little bit where we left off last week. We're in a series right now on the passion of Jesus, and uh, we're wanting to slow down just a little bit uh, in the scriptures and pick up Jesus's Passion Week. That's the last week that he was alive. It's, it's typically called his Passion Week, and we want to discover in it um, how we might take on Jesus's heart even more. So why don't we go ahead and put that up, and we'll read it, and we'll, we'll begin. Luke chapter 23, verse 1, is where it starts. It says, then the whole assembly rose, and they led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He, has, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Entertainment. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and they mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. And Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've exam examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for, in, for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant them their demand. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for. And he surrendered Jesus to their will. 
Why don't we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word this morning to us? That'd be all right. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate our mind this morning. Father, we ask that you would deliver us from Bible trivia and Bible knowledge. And God, we ask that you would baptize us into revelation. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, this is our second sermon in our series about the passion of Jesus. And um, we wanted to slow down here because here at the Vineyard, we really want to be like Jesus. And when we talk about wanting to be like Jesus, we mean uh, basically two specific things. We want to be like Jesus in character, meaning who Jesus is on the inside, his his integrity, the fruit of the Spirit, all that sort of stuff. We want to be like Jesus like that, but we also want to be like Jesus in power. We want to heal the sick. We want to raise the dead. We want to, and by the, by the way, when we're talking about raising the dead here at the vineyard, we want to raise the metaphorical dead and we want to raise the actual dead. I always want to just, I want to put that out there. People think, that's crazy. I know. I know. And we're going for it. We want to raise the metaphorical dead. We want to raise the actual dead. We want to cleanse the lepers. We want to drive out demons. We want to preach good news to the poor. And, and we want to be like Jesus in the heart. Not just to be able to, d- to demonstrate signs. Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 7, there'll be people who will come to me at the end of the day and they'll say, Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons? And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. It's not about just doing the stuff in terms of power, but it's also about having his heart. And by the way, sometimes we think, in certain, in certain branches of the church, it's just about having his heart and it's not about doing his stuff. Wrong. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he says, freely receive, now freely give. Heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out devils, cleanse the lepers, preach good news to the poor. We want both. So we want to be like Jesus. We want to demonstrate the stuff. We want to have his heart. We want to be outward. We want to be inward like Jesus. And uh, part of being like Jesus for us here at the Vineyard means that we want to be passionate. Um, we want to be passionate towards other people, and we want to live with passion towards God. Now, there are essentially, we, this is a little bit of review from last week, there are essentially four understandings of what passion is. Um, there are many more definitions. If you were to look it up in, in the dictionary, there are many more, but they all sort of, all of these definitions sort of flow into these four main categories. Um, a lot of us are a lot of us understand passion to mean like intense feelings, like to feel something intensely. Uh, and when we're talking about intense feelings, we're talking about the sort of feelings that can overtake a person and cause them to do things that, def- that defy logic. Does that make sense? So sometimes when people do things that make no sense, we look at the person and we go, that person's really passionate. That really didn't make sense. They went nutty. They're going for it. They're giving everything for this one thing. They're sacrificing it all. So that's one aspect of passion, intense feelings, often those that defy logic. Then second are, is this aspect of passion that has to do with commitment and like really deep interest, like deeply, deeply, deeply committed. Ever met anybody who was deeply committed to something? You might say they're passionate about it. And then the third aspect of passion is ardent love. And when we're talking about passion, the passion of Jesus, the kind that we want to take on, uh, we want to take on ardent love. That means like fiery love. That's, and when we're talking about fiery love, we're talking about fiery love, not just for God, of course for God, but we're also talking about fiery love for people as well. And then there's a fourth aspect of passion, 
And it's the one that Jesus demonstrates for us. In fact, it's the one that it's the one that he's known for. And we want to take it on as well. It's the one that if you were to look it up in your dictionary out beside it, it says obsolete and it is to suffer. There's this aspect of passion that comes along with it. And the idea that comes along is this idea of suffering, which which at a certain level is out of style these days. But we want to be people who are gripped by God and who are passionate in the fullest sense of the word because if we neglect any of these four areas, we end up being cartoon characters rather than the real thing. You guys ever been out on the street somewhere and seen like those artists, kind of artist people anyway, who, who make caricature drawings of people? What do they do? They look at you and they find like your one odd feature and then they blow it up and they make you a cartoon and you can look at it and go that that's you instantly it's somewhat recognizable because they're magnifying your distinctive feature but no one would be convinced that that's really you right that's not really you it doesn't look like a photograph and that's what happened that's what happens if we become people who define passion by any one of these four aspects without embracing the others if we're people if we're people of ardent love, if we really love God and we really love people, but we're never people who embrace pain and suffering, then we'll become a cartoon character. We'll become a cartoon character. So we want, we want to grab hold of all of it. We want to be people who hold nothing back, if that makes sense. Up to and including pain and suffering. Um, this is sort of a hard word, I realize that. But... Part of the truth that the, that the scriptures hold out for us this morning is that pain is actually an essential part of passion, especially for those who are modeling our lives after, after Jesus. Now, when I say things like this, pain is an essential part of passion, one of the things I don't want you to misunderstand is this. Um, what we're not talking about is going out and becoming martyrs. We're not talking about going out and becoming martyrs. Pain is an essential part of Jesus' passion but pain is not the point. Okay, this is, how, this is how we should understand it. Pain is a part and we want to embrace pain and we want to embrace suffering. But pain and suffering are not the point. What is the point? The point is to follow Jesus, to, obe- to be obedient to his call, to go, where he, to go where he leads, wherever it is. And if there's pain, suffering, or trials along the way, to not run away from it. But, but the point is not to... From where we're at today, go and find something painful and run into it. Pain is not the point. The point is to follow Jesus. There'll be pain along the way. And we want to embrace it. Does that make sense? Important distinction. Otherwise, we become martyrs who die for nothing. And that's just stupid. Just hang on. You'll... Again, it, means, it doesn't mean that we're going out looking for pain or that we're inviting it into our life because that's not highly intelligent. But the other part of it is, is this. It, 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 should, it should not mean either that we're trying to avoid the unavoidable. When you try to avoid the unavoidable, it makes work doubly hard. How many of you have ever been around people, uh, especially in school? Maybe you were this person. Maybe you were the person in school who worked twice as hard at cheating than it actually takes to just learn the material. Anybody ever know that guy? I was that guy. 
I was totally that guy in high school. I worked, I worked twice as hard avoiding the work as it actually took to learn the material. At, at a certain point, I, I realized that and I just started learning the material. And the pain of learning the material was actually less than everything that came along with trying to avoid it. So it doesn't mean that we go out looking for pain, but it also means that we're not, we're not going out following Jesus trying to avoid the pain, church. Here's why. Because sometimes when the desire to avoid pain and suffering, it actually, again, causes us to be cartoon characters. And one of the things that we do is that we build up emotional and spiritual walls. When you try to avoid pain and suffering at all costs, you will build up emotional and spiritual walls. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. Jesus calls us to a couple specific things. And one of the things that he calls us to is he calls us to bind up the brokenhearted. Everybody in here is called to bind up the brokenhearted. Um, The Apostle Paul says that we should mourn with those who mourn. It's actually a part of the gospel. We preach good news to the poor, but we're also called to bind up the brokenhearted. We're called to mourn with those who mourn. And what happens if you live a life of trying to follow Jesus but avoid the pain, you will build up emotional and spiritual walls. And when Jesus calls you to bind up the brokenhearted, you will will keep distance from them because how many of you know that when you get around the brokenhearted, their pain comes with them? You can't mourn with those who mourn unless it hurts you. You can't bind up the brokenhearted until their craziness gets on you. Part of the problem was trying to avoid all the pain. And so following Jesus to where the broken people are, it requires a sort of openness and vulnerability that makes pain a real possibility. One of the things I've learned as a pastor is that everybody wants joy and nobody wants sorrow, but a heart open to one is vulnerable to the other. I want to say that again. Everybody wants joy and nobody wants sorrow. But one of the things I've found is that a heart that is open to one is vulnerable to the other. That's the passion of Jesus. And so, here at the Vineyard, we believe several things. We believe that God gives beauty for ashes. Isaiah 61 stuff. We believe it. Like, we believe it all the way. We believe that God gives beauty for ashes. We believe that God gives joy for sorrow. And we believe that God hands out garments of praise for heaviness. And not just to some people, but to everyone. But here at the Vineyard, we also recognize that true giving costs someone something. Every time. Every time someone gives, it's costing someone else something. Uh, We have a saying in our family. If it's free, someone paid for it. Nothing's free. We talk about this all the time around our dinner table. How many of you know that if you're getting something for free, you're only getting it for free because someone else paid for it? Ain't nothing free. Nothing free. And so if we're called to go and bind up the brokenhearted, if we're called to partner with Jesus to bring beauty for ashes and joy for mourning and garments of praise for heaviness, part of the call is an implicit call not just to give, but there's a losing in it and there's sometimes pain associated with it. Does that make sense? So 
So here at the Vineyard, we want to be people who are not only able to pay the price, but actually willing. See, the grace of God, the grace of God, when it's operating in your life, the grace of God deposits in your life everything you need to pay any price. But living out of passion is not just having what it takes to pay any price, but it's the willingness to pay that price. That's Jesus right there, all the way. Not just having it, but willing. It's the guy who comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and says, Jesus, I'm a leper, and I know you can heal me if you're willing. It's the willingness. And so this morning's text is a brilliant picture of the passion of Jesus. And it's also a crystal clear picture of the gospel, both in terms of what we experience and what we're called to demonstrate. And so today's, me- today's message and today's past- passage is a bit of a mixture. And what I mean by a mixture is, is this. It's, it's a picture of Jesus and his mission, and it's a trumpet call for every one of those who need, of us in the room who need freedom, and it's a call for us to be like him. So it's the paradox of exposing our need and what we're called to. Does that make sense? It's one of the really strange things about the Gospels. Every time you're reading the Gospels, you're, you're reading this paradox and this tension of this is what I need and this is what Jesus does for me and at the same time it's what I'm called to go and do. And so the passage begins with Jesus on trial. If we can put the first bit back up there. The passage begins with Jesus being arrested and he's on trial and they, they, they have a charge. They've brought charges against him. And the charges are this, three things in particular. Number one, misleading the nation. Number two, refusing to pay tribute, that'd be taxes. And then number three, the claim to be a king. And they're false charges because the leaders of the synagogue knew that their charge of blasphemy would mean nothing to Pilate. Okay, so here's what's happened. Uh, They have arrested Jesus. Judas has betrayed him. They take Jesus in to see the high priest and everyone else. And they bring, they have this little trial and they say, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, well, you said it. And they said, well, that's all we need to hear. They tear the robes. Next thing you know, they say he's a blasphemer. We got to kill him, but they can't kill him. So they take Jesus and they bring him before Pilate. Pilate's a Roman and they know that their charge of Jesus being a blasphemer means nothing to Pilate. Pilate's like, what do I care? I don't even believe in your God, right? Everybody understand this. And so then they say, well, there's three things. They don't even bring up the blasphemy charge. They say, there's three things that you need to know about Jesus. Number one, he's misleading the nation. He's stirring up people. Number two, he's telling people don't pay their taxes. And then number three, he's claiming to be a king. And if he's claiming to be a king, then the implicit, the implicit message there is that Caesar is not king. And so he's destabilizing the Roman Empire. You should kill him. Make sense? And so they lied. And the lies were essentially that Jesus is a revolutionary in the sense that he wanted to overthrow Rome. And they said this because they knew Pilate would have been sensitive to the charges because he was a ruler of the empire and he would have been susceptible to the manipulation, not wanting for this to become an issue to, her, to his higher-ups. Anybody in here ever been in middle management? What's the number one rule in middle management? Never let any issue go to senior management. <laughs> right? These guys are slick. They know Pilate's essentially a middle manager. And the thing that can't happen is this is, cannot go to senior management level. So they bring some charges against him. 
And this is actually one of the aspects of, of passion, of Jesus' own passion and the kind of passion that we are bound to experience as we follow Jesus, is that Jesus was 100% innocent, but here he is in charge. Here he is in court having charges leveled against him. How many of you have ever been 100% innocent and been charged and lied about? If you haven't and you follow Jesus, good news, it will happen. (laughs) See, when you're lied about for the sake of righteousness, that's partaking in the passion of Jesus. That's that's partaking in the passion of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was 100% innocent, and, and we'll look at this in a minute a little more clearly. But one of the things that Luke is telling us, especially in chapter 23, over and over and over again, is that Jesus is innocent. Over and over and over. And so... And so the religious leaders, they bring Jesus to Pilate and they begin to lie about him. That's, that, is, that is a type of suffering, to be, to be 100% innocent and then to be on trial, lied about. That's passion. But one of the things that it takes for it to be the passion of Jesus is it actually takes innocence. How many of you have ever had people bring charges against you, but they were accurate? <laughs> See, if people level charges against you and they're accurate, that's not the passion of Jesus. How many of you know that? So one of the, one of the implicit, one of the implicit ap- aspects of the passion of Jesus is that, you, is, that there's an, is, is that there's injustice built in, right? Jesus was actually innocent. Over and over again, he was innocent. It's not just having people or powers stirred up against you, but it's about being righteous and innocent. It's also about living to a greater call, which is the call of God. And not just our own agenda, our own dream, or our own will, but, the, but it's God's call. It's, it's that Jesus was innocent and people began to lie about him. So you have to ask yourself, one of the things that we need to think about, especially this time of year as we're entering Easter season, is you have to ask yourself this question. If Jesus was all about love and mercy and peace and can't we all just get along, then why did they kill him? It's an interesting question. Why kill Jesus? He was just about loving people, right? Why did they kill him? We could write a book about that. But the really, 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 really short answer is, is that Jesus was living from a different call that couldn't be manipulated. And when you begin to call, follow the call of the Father, it, it really stirs up religious structures and will cause you to suffer. People will begin to bring charges against you that are not true. So the first point here this morning is very simple. Jesus was innocent of all the charges, yet he was ultimately convicted. And as a church, we can't partake of his passion, his kind of passion, being innocent, but having charges brought against us. We can't partake of that kind of passion until we've allowed the grace of God to do its deep work and make us truly innocent. See, one of the things that God wants to do this morning is that he wants to bring his church into a new place of innocence. Now, every, now as soon as someone says yes to Jesus, the Father declares you innocent. But then that innocence, it takes time to begin to work out into your actual life. You know what I'm talking about? There's a, there's a fancy word for that. It's called sanctification. And the Lord actually wants to sanctify you until your insides 
are not just on your insides, but it's reflected through your whole life. Does this make sense? And part of the work of passion this morning is that Jesus, and through the grace of God, wants to do a deep work in us until we're all the way, all the way innocent. Luke goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is innocent. If you've got your Bible out this morning and you have a pen, you should underline a couple verses. In verse 4, look at what Pilate says. I find no guilt in this man. Verse 14, again, Pilate says, After examining him before you, behold, I find this man guilt, not guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 22, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Pilate says three times Jesus is innocent. And then one of my favorite ones is in verse 47, same chapter. It says, now when the centurion had, had saw what had taken place, meaning that Jesus had just been crucified, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Whoa. You want to underline, especially verse 47, because we're going to come back to that. See, passion is being innocent and being turned over for punishment. Um, This week I was reading the New York Times and there was a man who had just been released from death row. And the reason they released him from death row is because uh, he had been exonerated because of DNA evidence. He had been locked up for 18 years, convicted for a murder he did not commit. Wow. Can you imagine? (laughs) Unbelievable. And, uh, And the story is incredibly sad because... The guy was charged, convicted, and put on death row, nearly executed several times. But it's just the grace of God. Like crazy things happen, and his execution was stayed, and DNA evidence comes out. He had nothing to do with the murder. They turn him loose. And then the really sad part is, is that now we have a guy who's middle-aged, and he has no skills. No skills. No education. His body had been destroyed in prison because of violence. No way to make a living. And he didn't pursue an education in prison because he was on death row and he figured he was going to die anyway. You should probably read the article. It's crazy. And the, and the gold in the article is actually in the commentary because people are freaking out about the what? The injustice. Right? The injustice. And they're calling for retribution. And so there's a, um, there's a, um, there's a motion on the, on the floor of the Senate in the state where he was convicted to get this man $70,000 for every year that he was put in prison wrongfully. Why would, there be an emo- why would there be a motion to give a man 70 grand for every year that he was wrongly convicted? Because it was unjust, right? It was, it was completely unjust. And the really, really crazy part is that as awful and as toxic and as heartbreaking and as gut-wrenching as a man being convicted for a murder that he didn't commit and spending 18 years in jail, as awful as that is, it pales in comparison to the Son of God being convicted and murdered. And he's the most innocent person in the entire universe ever. It's unbelievable. In verse 18, the story of Jesus' passion takes a shocking turn because there's a trade that happens. 
and you guys know this, Jesus is traded for Barabbas. Two times in, in just a few verses, Luke lays out the charge against Barabbas. Barabbas was in jail for two reasons. Number one, he was in jail for insurrection. That's a, fam- that's a fancy word for revolutionizing and trying to bring down the government, which, by the way, is essentially the charge that they were laying against Jesus, right? Barabbas was actually in jail for that and for murder. And they wanted to kill Jesus. So it's capital punishment. Both guys. Here we go. And then there's a trade. And so what ends up happening, you guys know this, the crowd say, we want Barabbas and we want you to take and kill Jesus. And Pilate says, no, we can't do that. And they come back and they say, no, crucify, kill Jesus and give us Barabbas. It's unbelievable. It's one of the most unbelievable parts of the whole story for me. And so Barabbas is let free and Jesus is punished. Barabbas is guilty and Jesus is innocent. Five times in nine verses, starting in verse 16, all the way down to verse 25. Five times Luke uses the word release. Five times Luke uses the word release. Two times he talks about the charges brought against Barabbas. Four times in one, in one chapter, Luke tells us that Jesus is innocent. It's part of the paradox of the gospel. And so Jesus, the most innocent, gets traded for Barabbas, the most guilty. And so even before Jesus is crucified on the cross, the work of the cross has already begun setting guilty people free. If guilty people are getting set free before Jesus is murdered on the cross, how much more are guilty people being set free after the cross? How much more? By the way, you may not be aware of it this morning, but the symbolism shouldn't be lost on anyone in the room. You and I are Barabbas. Maybe you never murdered anyone. I hope you didn't. But you and I are Barabbas. We're completely guilty. And just like Barabbas, every single person in here is in prison. And you're in prison on your own making. Barabbas was thrown in in prison for insurrection and for murder. And every single one of us in the room is living in a prison of our own making. And every single person in the room either has been set free or can be set free because an innocent man went to jail. So the passion of Jesus is that he's righteous and that he's innocent and that he was lied against and the message there for us this morning is very simple. Sometimes you do all the right things and you end up in the worst spot. One of the things that we should take away from the Gospels this morning is a theme that runs all the way through the Gospels. It's not a, great, it's not a hugely popular theme, but it's a theme nonetheless. And it's this. It's that you can actually follow God. It's that you can actually obey His voice. It's that you can actually hear Him and do what He says and end up in a really difficult spot. Jesus, totally innocent, murdered. Maybe you remember how Jesus was born. Angel comes to Mary and says, 
Mary, you're highly favored, and you're going to be pregnant. A couple months later, when Mary's belly begins to show, she has to go talk to her mom and dad. Mom, dad, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, God did it to me. See, sometimes the activity of God in our lives actually brings us into an incredibly difficult moment. And sometimes the explanation actually makes the moment more difficult. I, I Really, I didn't sleep with anyone. God did it to me. There's an aspect of the gospel. There's an aspect of following Jesus that oftentimes brings us into tough spots. And so Jesus was traded for a rebel murderer. And that's his passion. And in doing so, Jesus had completely and he had thoroughly identified with the lost, the rebel, the sick, and the needy. A lot of us in the room are familiar with the fact that Jesus identifies with with humanity and baptism. Any any of y'all ever read like the baptism story of Jesus and you're like, man, that's so weird. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Even John the Baptist says, hey, I should, you, no. You should baptize me. Isn't that what John the Baptist says? But Jesus says, no, we got to do it to fulfill all righteousness, which is sort of a weird way of saying, you know what, man, I'm I'm here because I love people. And I want people to know I'm, I'm, I'm in the water with them. But Jesus doesn't just identify with people when it costs nothing. Jesus doesn't just identify with people when it's just a little baptism water and John the Baptist and locust for lunch. Jesus identifies with people even when it's incredibly difficult. Even when it costs them everything. And likewise, here at the Vineyard, we want to be people. We want to be people of passion who live our lives for the weak and the rebel. We want to be people who are not looking for distance. It's the really difficult part. A lot of times when we get around really weak people, when we get around really rebellious people, we start looking for distance. Weak people bring crazy with them. We want to distance ourselves from crazy. But Jesus shows us that he finds crazy and he goes and gets right next to it. Had an experience lately. Where we were at a party and one guy had had a little too much to drink. People were kind of walking wide circles around him. Me and a couple of my buddies went a little closer found out that the guy who had a little too much to drink was the only guy in the room sober and awake and aware to the love of Jesus. <laughs> Let that stretch your theology for a moment. <laughs> yeah, Jesus had completely identified with the lost and the rebel. And one of the things that we want to do is that we want to completely identify with the lost and the rebel. Not that we become lost and not that we become rebels, but not that we're looking for distance. Here at the Vineyard, we're not looking for distance. We're not looking for space, and we're not trying to get away from crazy. We're not trying to pass people off, but we're actually looking to pay the tab. See, here's the deal. God's grace has given us an, an inexhaustible account. 
But the real question this morning, and this is where passion comes into into play. God's grace has given us an inexhaustible account. But the question for everybody in the room this morning is, who's willing to pay it? Passion is looking at crazy and rebel and saying, you know what? I'm not going to look for distance. I'm going to pay the tab. We'll just let that sit in the room for a moment. And finally this morning, passion is all about strength and weakness. And this cuts right against the grain of all of our American ideals and American religious ideas of what's right. But Jesus shows us that passion is about strength and weakness. Jesus gets put on trial. And one of the things that's remarkable about Jesus, in every single one of the Gospels, it's one of the things that are remarkably, there's a harmony in all the Gospels. But when Jesus is put on on trial, one of the things that you see is that he hardly says a word. He hardly defends himself. Anybody in the room ever been lied about or had false accusations brought against you? What's your number one temptation? Fight back, right? Got to set the record straight. Jesus says almost nothing. Why does Jesus say almost nothing? He's actually demonstrating for us that silence with the Holy Spirit is worth more than a million words without Him. And that there is an actual, in the kingdom of heaven, there is strength and weakness. Strength and weakness. What does that mean for us? It means that here at the vineyard, we're not always going to be people who are mounting a greater defense. Sometimes people in the community might say something about us or me or you. We're not going to mount a greater defense. One of the things I've learned is that if you return emails in a manner that tries to defend yourself against people, it just creates a bigger hornet's nest. For the most part, when people send me an angry email, I send them back an email that says, you're probably right. Please forgive me. (laughs) And I'm actually not being sarcastic, totally. I'm learning. Passion is about the strength of weakness. It's about not always mounting a greater defense. It's about not living an argumentative lifestyle. It's about not doing everything that it takes to protect one's reputation. It's about not fighting for one's rights, but laying them all down. Jesus is so, so quiet. You know what's better than words in the kingdom of heaven? Silence. He didn't fight, he submitted. And there's something about submission that opens eyes that are completely blind. Quiet submission opens 
opens people's eyes that are completely blind. If you look at Luke chapter 23, we've already pointed at this verse, but I want to point back to it because it's such a powerful, powerful moment for us. After Jesus had been crucified, look at verse 47. And now when the centurion had saw what had taken place, he praised God. That's totally bonkers. God doesn't even know God. When he sees Jesus laid down, quiet, not defending himself, crucified, dead on the cross, he praises God and he says, certainly this man was innocent. Certainly this man was innocent. What's the point? The point is that there's strength and weakness. There's strength in quiet. There's strength in not fighting. There's strength in not debating. Arguments never win. Any, anyone who has argued into a position can just as easily be argued out of a position. But w- the weakness of the gospel is revelation that changes things in people's minds and hearts forever. Beyond argument. We're, 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 we are arguing from a place of, of beyond words. We're living from a realm of beyond, beyond thought. We're living from a realm that is beyond convincing people it is the work of the Spirit. Does this make sense? And so this is the reason that Paul says, later on, it's the reason that Paul says, when I'm weak, he is strong. This is the, and by the way, this is the hardest thing to learn. This is the hardest thing to learn. And it's, it's the essence of the gospel. When I'm weak, he's strong. Oh, it's so hard. It's so, so hard. It's hard to be weak. Nobody likes weak. Weak is, weak is difficult to look at. It's really, really hard, especially for men. We hate being weak. Jesus calls us to be weak. We hate being weak. We want to be strong. We want to be like riding our horses and chopping off heads. And we want to be the victors. And Jesus says, no, you've got you to be weak, man. You've got to be weak. Really, really weak. And, and strength in the kingdom of heaven is having every right, every power, and every ability and not using any of them. That's the strength of the kingdom. The strength of the kingdom is the ability to convict and not. Jesus was on trial and he could have, in the moment, put everyone in the room on trial and he didn't. This is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus was on trial and he he could have turned the switch, put everyone else in the room on trial. He was more brilliant than they were. He, He could have called down angels. I mean, he could have done all kinds of things. He does none of it. It's having all the abilities and using none of them. And so this morning, Jesus is calling us to a new sort of passion. It's a quieter passion. It's a weaker passion. It's the passion to have abilities and not use them against people. It's the passion to look at really, really weak people, to look at rebels, and rather than try to find distance, we're looking to close the gap and get near them. It's not just knowing in a prosperity gospel sense that all things are ours, but it's the willingness to pay the price. There's a certain part of the church right now that is very into all things are ours, but they're completely unwilling to do anything for anyone. Well, what the heck? And Jesus is calling us to something new. Amen? Amen.
Hey, why don't we stand up this morning? I want to pray for you. If you're on the ministry team this morning, I want you to come on forward. Hey, if you're sick in your body this morning, after we finish praying here, we want to pray for you. If you just need somebody to stand with you this morning, we want to pray for you. Otherwise, why don't you put your hand on your heart this morning? Father, we love you. And God, we ask that you would put the passion of Jesus in our heart. God, we ask that the, that the fires of Jesus' passion would come to full light in our heart. God, things that are just embers, God, we ask that they would, that they would receive the wind of the Spirit and a flame would jump up there. Father, um, even right now, God, we, we just look to you and we say that we want to be people who are laying down our lives. God, we want to be people who are not wasting all of our energy mounting a greater defense, living an argumentative lifestyle, protecting our reputations. God, but we want to be people who lay them all down, who get really quiet. And Father, we want to be people who are laying hold of grace so that we can pay the price. Not just, not just able, but willing. Not just able, but willing. Father, we want to be willing and able. And so, Father, in these days, in these days of cross and resurrection, God, we ask that you would begin to resurrect in us the life of Jesus. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Give somebody a high five and a hug. If you need prayer for anything, you come on up. We want to pray for you. Otherwise, go in peace.